Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 183. Thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode. So um, today I want to speak uh, just a little while on a passage from Romans chapter 9. And if you're familiar with Romans and especially chapter 9, um, you may have just gasped a little, um, and rightly so. It's um, it, It's a deeply controversial, um, disagreeable topic, if I could use that word, um, stirs up much uh, opinions, we'll say. And I, I just came came across this particular passage um, again and spent some time chewing on it. And so I, I want to maybe ask some questions of the text um, as you navigate your own personal study and and see what you make of some of these uh, suggestions or thoughts, um, I'll give uh, my perspective. Um, but let me just say at the outset um, of this, um, I don't pretend to understand the depth of what all is being said here. Um I don't, for one moment, pretend that I have figured out and navigated the the dynamic of of the text. There's there's still substantial parts that I would struggle with and um, have difficulty with. Even I would go as far as to say that I even cringe at the thought of some of these texts. It's important, though as we navigate through Scripture, that we don't fall into the trap of trying to bring the text in line with what we understand. We want to elevate our understanding to the text. The Word of God is our anchor, and if we start to unanchor ourselves and realign it in a way that maybe is more comfortable or makes more sense to what we believe to be so, then we are in a very dangerous position. And if we can re-anchor ourselves uh, at a certain point, then what is to stop us from re-anchoring at any point in time? And before we know it, we have drifted far off course, and the very thread of our anchor, the, the Word of God— is something that is not ever even considered anymore, and we create for ourselves our own uh, doctrines, and uh, which I'm not a huge fan of that word anyways, uh, and our own thinking, our own framework for understanding truth. So we must be careful, and I, I'm an advocate, uh, whole, wholeheartedly an advocate for for meditating on God's Word and seeking to understand. Um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, if you're not familiar with him, uh, a great preacher of uh, maybe the 1800s, um, said that when, 
what God reveals to us in his word should be enough as it is revealed. If he intended us to understand or know more, he would have revealed it. And I I can see his stance, but I also um, I also find myself uh, in a bit of opposition to that stance because we I, I never want to 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 come to the place where I'm satisfied with what I understand in itself he's not Spurgeon is not telling us I don't believe to just read it and that's that Um, I'm confident that he would advocate that we seek to understand but going deeper or further than the text gives us is what he's cautioning and I I can appreciate that Um, but I also think that there is there is something to be said. There's value for trying to deeply understand and dissect the text, the scriptures, and find out, navigate, so to speak, the truths of what's in the text. Okay, so a a bit of a preamble, ramble there, but I think it's important. Um, And so, I don't have it all figured out, so let's let's go from there. Um, so Romans chapter nine, and the text that I really am kind of drawing your attention to is the the simple yet very complex passage in verse thirteen, where Paul says, "Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." Um. I'm going to read the broader scope of that passage, but I just want that's the that's the really hairpin point that I want to draw your attention to. If you've read through Romans at all, you've come across that. Um, if you've listened to different people teach or preach, you've probably come across that verse. Um, it makes you cringe, probably as it does me. Um, and um, and so the question is, what does that mean exactly, or best that we can come to? How can we understand what what that's saying or meaning uh, best that we can? So um, that's that's where we're landing, hopefully, uh, without going too long and far. Um, so I'm just going to backpedal a little and pick up in verse six or so, but. Paul here in Romans 9 is is anguishing over Israel. Um, he has a lot of sorrow for his people. He wishes, he says, that he could himself be cut off or cursed from Christ for the sake of his people, those of his own race. Now, uh, that's I don't even know what to make of a statement like that. Um, simply, that is grace alone for that, that Paul is feeling... Uh, concerning Israel, uh, those of his race, um, I I could not make a statement like that. Um, and so it is, I think, solely given by the grace of God put in his heart so that he may uh, feel that way concerning his people. Um, 
and it's available, I think, to anyone, even in our day, but it's simply by the grace of God. Uh, so he goes on and he talks about the patriarchs um, throughout their their ancestry. Um, and so verse 6, he says, It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So if you're tracking with that so far, he's he's essentially saying um, it's not a matter of the flesh, but something else. Um, he, it goes on, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. So notice there he there's a physical um, there's a, a physical component that he gives analogy to that that um, summarizes or encapsulates a spiritual reality. He transitions from you know um, Israel is not all Israel. Um, the descendants of Abraham um, are not all Abraham's children. So there's this physical component, and then he switches it um, to to this reality of God's children. So there's this spiritual component in it. So in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now that's out of Genesis 18, uh, 10 and 14. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. Now notice that. Before the twins... So who are we speaking of there? Uh, Jacob and Esau. In order that... In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So this passage, text, is a real um, driving force for this idea of... um, God's election of, of, of people, uh, God's predestination of, of a person and people. Um, that's, 
if you do not hold to this idea of predestination and election, um, then this is a very difficult passage for you because um, it's hard to navigate um, in light of what the text says. And if if you do hold to this idea of predestination and election, then uh, you're pretty excited by this passage because it it uh, points really uh, distinctly to the the conclusions that you have regarding scripture. Um, but without uh, the intent of what I'm speaking on is not to argue for or against predestination and election. Um, the question is, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so here Paul in Romans is is quoting from Malachi. And um, in Malachi here, this prophet is, is addressing some issues that are happening uh, locally in, in this body of people. There's some compromise. There's, um, there's some issues with its leadership. There's some issues of uh, tithing. Um, so there's, there's some issues going on. Um, and the temple, if I'm not mistaken, has at this point been um, rebuilt, but there's some frustration because the this rebuilding of the temple has not produced this messianic promise that they were expecting. And so there's some frustration in the, we'll call it the body. Um, and so Malachi is, is, is doing so, he is uh, um, addressing some of these issues throughout his writing, but he writes in verse 2, um, it says, I quote, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So this is what Paul is quoting and it it begs the question. I can't help but ask the question, as many probably of you have as well. What is what is being said here in this text? Does does the phrase "Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated" does that does that carry the same? Like idea of what we have, how we understand this word. Now, um, Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament we have it in Greek. So there's some, you know, crossing of language. Uh, not only that, but then we have to put it into uh, the English language the best that we can. And so there's some real difficulties navigating some of uh, original intention, but. Um, we're not we're not drawing into question you know, the validity of the translation and all of this that's unnecessary um charles spurgeon um taught on this passage and he takes it very literally um which 
he expresses his uh, frustration or difficulty in in the text, and uh, it's very uncomfortable, which no no doubt it should be. That is a, it is a very challenging thing to consider, but God hating Esau, and he gives a couple of you know uh, of his day. People who have tried to navigate the text, try to you know rationalize or justify what may have been said. Perhaps they say that he loved Esau less than than Jacob, um, or perhaps that it was some sort of national uh, hate, as in the Edomites versus the Israelites. Um, unfortunately, um, the the national perspective doesn't really carry any kind of weight because of the context of of what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter nine. There's really no there's no national um, distinguishing factors at all. So then it begs the question: Well, then, you know what what is this? What does this mean? What can we draw from this? Again, let me repeat, I don't have it all figured out, and I won't pretend to that I do, or I imagine that you don't have it figured out either. But for the, my intention is, um, how might we understand the text in light of other texts? Um, how can we harmonize other scripture so that we can, in hopes, rightly understand what we're reading. And so I, I just I want to maintain the point of the scripture, that is the, the sharpness, the edge. I don't want to just make it more digestible or um, easier to swallow. Um, there's still that that component to the mystery of it. But um, we'll look at a few other scriptures to to just perhaps put a question mark on this as to, uh, well, does it mean hate in the sense of what we understand hate to mean? Um, so when I think about this passage, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That word hated there is the Greek word um, meseo. And we see that word used many times in the New Testament and many of the times, if not most of the times. It carries with it this, if you look at it in context of the sentence, it it would appear that that, that is some type of um, extreme emotional dislike uh, of a person or a situation, you know, etc. So, on the surface, it seems like there can be a consistency for that. Um, but then, when I think about passages like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So, God so loved the world. So, did God have this 
huge personality change between the Old and New Testament? Well, no. God God isn't like us in the sense that we can be wishy-washy and this way one moment and another way another moment. We have dysfunction. God does not have dysfunction. Um, so no, there's not some big personality shift between the two covenants, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think a good question of this text, and um, I will tell you where I stand, but you work it out and navigate it for yourself as well, is, is this statement about love and hate? So the and could we call it the antithesis of hate would be love. The opposite of love's hate. Could we say that? Perhaps um, you could also say that it, it would the absence of or the opposite of love could be uh, apathy. Uh, but any we for the sake of this, we could say the opposite of love could be hate. So is this statement about love or hate, or is it about choosing? Or rejecting. And if we look at the broader context of chapter 9 here, Paul is speaking specifically in verses 6 and onward, specifically um, expanding upon God's sovereignty. He's talking about God's choo- choosing. He's talking about God's election, um, or if you will, predetermining. So rather than it being an expression of love versus hate, like this idea of passion, I I believe, I, I hold to the idea that this is more so an expression of of choosing or rejecting. Now, again, don't fall into the trap of, I think this, so this is how I will see this. Careful with that. And I even record this episode with this real trepidation, this real caution or hesitancy because I don't want to be guilty of of softening up something so that it's easier to digest um, or better aligns with my mentality or the way I see things. I don't want to be guilty of that, and I don't want to first and foremost uh, displease God or or spread misinformation or a uh, a wrong view or wrong understanding conclusion of his word so i feel in inside me a real caution um it's sobering but if if you and i were here speaking with one another in conversation and we were talking about this and we were ex- expanding on our our where we are in understanding these would be these would be conversations that we would have so when i 
when I navigate this, when I ex- expand on here's my perspective, don't take it from the stance of this is the this is the answer. Take it as two friends talking together, and here's where we add it. Here's where we're at in our understanding of the text. And as God takes us through and grows us in areas and the Holy Spirit reveals to us uh, new revelations or understanding insights, then we can evolve, so to speak, with with that understanding. So prefacing all that, um, I believe that this is not about love and hate. It's about choosing or rejecting. So I, in my thinking, I would say something along the lines of, Jacob I chose, but Esau I have rejected. That's how I, that's how at this current time I process this verse. This is how I come, this is how I understand it. It doesn't make it right or perfect, um, but this is this is what I believe the context of what's being said here is actually speaking of. Because again, we think about other scripture, and which I want to take us to uh, just kind of quickly, um, and I'll turn there. So um, forgive me for any you know extended pauses, but um, let's let's look at. Um, Let's look at 2 Peter 3, verses 9. And it says, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, we have, some some hold this Romans 9 section to speak of um, this predestination, election, God's pre-chosen some, and some he has not chosen. Therefore, their destiny is for destruction. And they have their very passionate reasons for believing so. There are some very convincing arguments that could be said for it uh, based on Scripture. Um, But conversely, you have other Scriptures that can express this idea that no, um, God's desire is not that any should be destroyed, but that everyone should come to repentance. Here is one of those verses. And so, again, all of this, keep it connected to this idea of is this love and hate or is this choosing or rejection? So so that was Second Peter 3, 9. Um, let's look at First John Three verse fifteen. So um, it says, John says here in this one, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Okay, so if if this that Paul is speaking of, quoting Malachi, which Malachi gives this as God's word. He said it, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, that's this is an this is more reason why I don't believe this is 
encapsulating the idea of hated as we think of it because that would the very idea of that violates revelation that we obtain in other scripture because how how is it that god could hate a person if he gives the command that if you hate a brother or sister, then he considers you a murderer. Well, God is not guilty of sin. God, um, I dare say, doesn't even have the capacity to sin. Um, he's not tempted to sin. And so this, um, I believe this is just another passage to say, well, if he if he says whoever hates a brother or sister is a murderer, then would that not – if he hated Esau in that regard, would it – would he not violate that? And so uh, let's, let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 5 verse 43 through 48. We may for the sake of time not read it, it all, but I'm just turning quickly if that's even possible. <laughs> All right, Matthew 5, uh, 43 through 48. Um, so Jesus here speaking in this, what we call the, the Beatitudes, um, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is telling them, love your enemies. Don't hate them. And you, you very easily could say that, yeah, Esau would have been an enemy of God. He didn't consider his birthright, his inheritance. He was opposed to the, the things of God. Don't get me wrong. Jacob was a mess. Both of these guys are messes. And, and so it's not, a, it's not a matter of one being better than the other. Um, but what, we're, what I'm trying to reinforce here is Jesus himself says, don't hate your enemy, love your enemy. And so um, this, this idea of God hating Esau seems to violate the very commandment that Jesus gives us to uphold. And he says, be perfect. That would mean do what I'm telling you just as your father is perfect. So he's, he is indirectly reinforcing the, the way of God. God would be that way, so be perfect like him, i.e., love your enemy. Okay, um, and in case you thought maybe, well, this is just a New Testament deal, not necessarily revealed in the Old, Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 17. 
So I'll uh, flip to that. Um, these are laws given uh, through the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19, verse 17. And it says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. So it says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. If God hated Esau in his heart, then would that not violate the very law that was given to Moses to pass on to Israel? So there's an Old Testament um, component there. And then the last place that I want to, to look at is Luke 14 verse 26. So here we are again with Jesus, um, and he is speaking to large crowds that were traveling uh, with him and through his ministry. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So there Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now that's the Greek word there again, meseo. And so we see both of those instances um, rendered as the word hate. Now, is Jesus instructing his listeners to, from their heart, in the sense that we understand it, is he telling them that you must hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, and even your own life? Oh, no. He's not telling them that they have to hate hate them and that. He's talking about the there is a cost to being his disciple. And I would just kind of represent this idea of choice. It's a matter not of, of love versus hate, in the sense of the emotion of the word, it's it's a sense of rejection, um, or in this way, by comparison, you must hate that in how much you love me. I think a word that, and I'm not a scholar and or any of that, but I think a word that helps us to process maybe it helps me to process, is reject. If anyone comes to me and does not reject, or that would be as though to say wholeheartedly coming to me, not clinging to what's in the in the past or in the background, if you would not come to me wholeheartedly, then you cannot be my disciple. And so... That just those are some verses that I think help 
um, shine some light on how I don't believe that the the Romans um, nine thirteen passage of loving Jacob but Esau uh, God is hating. I don't think it's in the capacity that we would would originally grab as we you know kind of surfacely uh, unpack what that's saying. I think it's more encapsulating this idea of rejection as in um, his election. And and I, I'll just lastly say, you know, God, um, God gets to do and choose as he desires. And his desire and his choice is always good. It's always best and right and just. And... Um, we don't we we don't understand it um we have such a very narrow window to view through um when we process situations and th- things that happen but um we have to constantly hold on to the idea that god is good and he loves me and he sees better and further than i can see or understand. So there's a component to trust that we must cling to. And so for whatever reason, God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. Now I'm sure whole educations have been given, devoted to dissecting that dynamic, the rejection of Esau the choosing of Jacob and his lineage, um, which we won't even attempt to get into. But God God chose that, and, and he is right in his choice. Not that either one deserved better than the others. They were both scoundrels. Um, every one of us are um, evil and... Uh, and not worthy, but God's grace um, is extended, and whatever God chooses and does is right. So I hope that maybe gives a little bit of light on the passage, uh, if you've struggled with it as as I have as well. Um, thank you for taking the time with me on this episode. Um, if you have um, questions or uh, scriptures that you would like for me to uh, discuss in future episodes. Um, please uh, send those, email that to me, uh, the Bible study podcasts at gmail.com. And also, you can uh, check out the ever evolving website, the Bible study podcasts.com, um, where you can find the episodes and um, other details that come out. I have links to my books that I have. Uh, written and put out there through Amazon. There's links there and that as well. And uh, just if you have any feedback or uh, ideas, I'd love to hear those reach out. And I'd appreciate you taking the time with me on this episode. And I look forward to the next one. God bless. I'm close to you. I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with